1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I want to speak to you about today about the power of the cross. The power of the cross. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Listen to what he said. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If you just back up one chapter, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. Amen. I want to talk to you about the power of the cross this morning. Recently, recently a friend of mine told me of an experience that he had in taking few of you. His first lesson was on this small sailboat. And the wind came along. And how many of you know you, you need wind to go sailing? And that's the, the main thrust of a sailboat is to get wind in its sail and to sail on. And so in his experience, this was him uh, learning how to sail. So he's on this sailboat, and this wind came, and it was so powerful that the wind began to tip the sailboat. And he had this very nervous, anxious look on his face, and the instructor, uh, aware of it, looking at him, saw his concern and saw the stress on his face. And he went over to him and he said, listen, he said, relax. He said, there is what's called the keel, the under part of, of a sailboat that is weighted, that could weigh up to half the weight of the whole sailboat. And the purpose of the keel, one of the main purposes, is to keep the sailboat from tipping over. So even though it could go almost sideways, almost horizontal, the sailboat will not tip because of the keel. Can you just put that image up for me of, of just um, the sailboat and see the blue part of this sailboat? That, uh, that fin on the bottom, that's the keel. And that keel can weigh up to 35 to 45 percent. What keeps the sailboat from tipping over. So my question this morning to you is, how much weight do you have in your keel? And see, the keel is below the surface. It's not what people see. And you know, we live in a culture, it's all about what you see. It's all about the, the highlight reel of your life on social media. It's all about the image you project. And I've said it before, in a lot of places, Christianity can be a mile wide, but only an inch deep. And what I mean by that, it could be very surface, 
But, but it's not about what's on the surface as much as what's below the surface. So my question to you is, how much weight do you have in your keel? And a good follow-up question is, how do you get weight in the keel? What I mean by that is spiritually, as followers of Jesus, how do we put more weight in, in our keel? That, that, that point or that place of stability in our life. Because the reality of it is, wind is going to come. Storms are going to come. Believe me. And, and in reality, you can't go sailing without the wind. And in life, see, that's the paradox of life that I don't like. You might like it. But with blessing comes burdens. With, with the propelling of the wind to move you along comes the, the challenge of almost feeling like you're going to get blown over. It's that, it's that stress in life to where we all want to be blessed, but we've got to realize with blessing comes burdens. We all want to be promoted, but with the promotion comes greater responsibility. And the higher you go in life, the thinner the air gets up there. The higher you climb a mountain, the thinner the air gets. And that's why there's only so few that can handle that. But this morning, I want to encourage you. I want, to, I want you to get more in your keel, more below the surface, more weighted on the bottom so that when the wind comes and the waves come, you'll be sustained. Turn to the person next to you and say, you need more weight in your keel. How many of you never knew what a keel was? Well, good, you learned something. I'm so glad to help you this morning. You see, the cross is what weighs us, gives us that, that weight in our keel, which stabilizes our life like nothing else. And scripturally and theologically, the cross is the hinge upon which the door of history swings. It is the hub that holds the spokes of God's purposes in grand unity. The Old Testament prophets pointed toward it. The New Testament disciples proclaimed the cross. And you see this morning, as the old hymn writer says, some of you might know this hymn, when I cling, when we say we cling to the old rugged cross, we are not doing so out of mere sentimentality, but we understand that the cross is the heart of our message and the cross is the heart of our power. Jesus died on a rugged cross for our salvation. We do not worship the cross. We worship the Christ who died on the cross and rose again on the third day. Yet among all of the emblems of the world, the cross is admired with awe and wonder. Paul stated it in Galatians chapter 6. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, for the Christian, we use that cross as a symbol. And oh, does it represent so, so much. The cross stands at the zenith of divine glory. It is tragedy and victory in the same moment. It is scandal and honor. It is defeat and triumph. It is humility and esteem. 
Every time the gospel is proclaimed, those who hear the message and believe in it for salvation come to faith by way of the cross. <clears throat> That's why Paul so emph emphatically declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, the message of the cross is considered foolishness by those who are perishing. But us who are saved, we understand the cross is the power of God. You see, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul, I, I just love the way he declares about the cross. He says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, this passage, this epistle, this letter of Corinthians was written to the city of Corinth, the Greek city that had placed such a high priority on eloquence, on oratory ability, on philosophical uh, declarations. And so in this passage, he's, he's addressing a community of faith that had lost sight of the centrality of the cross of Jesus. And boy, do we need to hear that today. In a culture, in a day, in an age where we have lost that sight of the centrality of the cross because of all of the cultural uh, tsunami that is pushing in on the church and all of the ideas and all of the human wisdom and, and the eloquence and, and all of human ingenuity and, and power that seems to preoccupy our minds. Paul was bringing it back and he was addressing this community and saying, you have lost sight of the centrality of the cross. And my job this morning, whether you like it or not, I hope you like it, but my job is to bring us back, is to preach and declare that the centrality of the cross is essential. It's what puts weight in your keel. It's what will sustain you in life. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was making a demand that all of the theology, all of the talk of divine attributes, they must be grounded and settled in the crucified Christ rather than in human wisdom. You know, we can do a lot of good things, but if we don't center it all on the cross, it means nothing. You know, if you, I remember in, in, in college, I always would look over the syllabus and I kind of liked the courses that didn't have a research paper. Do you have any friends out there? Just, you know, no research paper, like just multiple cho choice exam. But, but what if you had a research paper, right? And, and you, you, you did your assignment you did your research, you did your due diligence, you, you worked hard, you, you put together this paper, and, and you hand it in to the professor. And now you get your paper back, you're excited, you did your work, you, you really worked hard, you think you had a great paper, and on the top of the paper is a big red zero. And the professor writes, great work! Great preparation, 
wrong assignment. See, it wasn't that you hadn't done great work, hadn't done a great paper, great assignment. You had researched the wrong topic. You see, you didn't get credit for what you did because you did the wrong topic. Christianity, I want you to hear me this morning, Christianity is no different. It's not that there aren't a lot of good people doing a lot of excellent things. It's not that there are not people who attend church, help the hurting, or say even the right, correct spiritual platitudes. It's just that they've missed the cross. They've missed the cross. They've missed Jesus Christ. And they wonder why they ain't getting any credit. They wonder why they ain't, they're not experiencing victory, power, hope, authority. You see, the problem is external observances, the rules of religion, can actually get in the way of a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the whole premise of the gospel is that God himself came down in the form of a man, holy and perfect, so that you and I could be reconciled back to God, so that he would go to a cross and take on the sins of the world, your sins and my sins, and die on that cross so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. That was the great exchange on the cross. Jesus took our sins and he gave us his holiness, his righteousness, so that you and I could be made the righteousness of God and have access to heaven, not dependent on our righteousness, not dependent on what we've done. All we have to do is confess our sins, repent of them, put our faith in Jesus, and have the hope of eternal life. That's why this morning we can never exhaust the meaning of, the value of, the glory of the cross. You see, we would be more successful at trying to empty the ocean with a teaspoon than we would be able to exhaust the meaning of the cross of Calvary. Why? Because the cross, nothing speaks of the love of God. Nothing speaks of the grace of God like the cross does. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. What a message, what a hope. But to those who are perishing, to those that are lost, to those that are antagonistic, to those that reject the counsel of God, the cross seems like foolishness. How could a man dying on a cross bring salvation to the world? But therein is the wisdom of God. God has taken the foolishness of man, or the wisdom of man, and he's turned it into the foolishness. You see, on the cross, you and I receive God's love and God's grace. You see, we must hear, we must remember that his death was for us. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. That great prophetic prophecy when Isaiah looked through the annals of history, down through 700 years of history, and he saw Jesus and what he would go through. Isaiah 53, well, let me go back to 52. Isaiah 52, the Bible says in verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man. 
in his form more than the sons of men. Verse 4 of chapter 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. You see, just so quickly, if I can just go through these very quickly, you know how to, you know how to help me to go quickly, don't you? Number one, the cross, at the cross, it was violent. It was violent. The Bible says that his appearance was marred more than anyone. I, I think that one of the greatest movies that depicted in real life what Jesus went through was the passion. I, I've seen other, other, movies, other movies about Jesus and I see he's got a little blood over here and a little blood over there and I say that is so unrealistic. He was whipped with 40, 39 lashes. And each, each part of that whip had several leather strands and each one of them had glass and metal and, 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 and stone on it. And that, that lash would not just go into the body or, or sweep across the body, but it would rip into the flesh and it would pull the flesh out because that metal and that glass and that body would reach into and below the surface of the flesh. He was marred more than anyone. His, his whole appearance, the Bible says. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was blindfolded. He was struck on the face. He was spit upon. They plucked out his beard. A crown of thorns was put on his head, and then they struck him on top of the head. Not only that, then they thrust an old rugged beam upon his shoulders. It was a violent death. It was a brutal death. It was an ugly death. It was a cruel death. But what's most amazing is to think that it was done to the creator of the universe. Just to think that God would so humble himself and so condescend to come down to earth and allow his creation to do that to him. It is beyond comprehension. It was violent, but it was also voluntary. John 10, verse 18, Jesus said, No man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Hallelujah. I love that. Because it shows who was really in control. Jesus voluntarily laid his life down. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of, the, of death, even the death of the cross. In John chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate asked Jesus, do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to release you? Jesus said to Pilate, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. I've given you the position. I've given you the power. Uh, it came from me. He's, he was saying in essence, listen, I have the power to lay my life down. I can do it on my own will, and I can do it voluntarily. The Bible says it was voluntary. It was willing. It was out resi without resistance. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was, a, he was led to the slaughter as a lamb. 
And as a sheep before its shearers, he was silent. He opened not his mouth. My God, what mercy, what grace, what humility. We know in the garden when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter tried to defend Jesus. He struck the servant of the priest. See, I like Peter. He had some fire. He had some chutzpah, whatever that means. And he saw Jesus being arrested. He got out the sword and he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, put away your sword. And you know what he said to Peter? He said, don't you know that I can call upon my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. You know what 12 legions, you know what a legion of angels in the Roman army, the unit, uh, a legion was anywhere from four to 6,000 soldiers. So 12 legions, you do the math, 12 times 4,000, that's 48,000. 12 times uh, 6,000, that's 72,000 angels. Now, we're not talking about those little cute little uh, chubby little angels that, that have a little violin and float on a cloud that we see in, in, in the artwork. These are mighty warring angels that were, that were standing, if you will, they were standing on the, uh, 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 between heaven and earth uh, and just on the precipice of, uh, uh, of looking on and seeing what was happening. All they needed was just a, 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 a twinkle in the eye of Jesus and they would have responded and they would have wiped out all the enemies of God. But Jesus didn't call on them. Jesus submitted himself. It was not only violent, it was voluntary, but it was vicarious. Vicarious. Isaiah 53 tells us that he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. The word vicarious means performed or endured by one person as a substitution for another. When we say it was vicarious, it means that Jesus took all of that in our place. He took what you and I deserved. Do you understand that this morning? You and I deserved what he experienced but he vicariously, he took it in our place. He carried the weight of the sins of the world. Think of the weight, think of a moment of sin you and I have all experienced and think of the weight and the torment and the guilt that that could have upon us. When our consciences, when our consciences, our conscience are sensitive. Think about a time when you, when you sinned and when you, you blew it, when you made mistakes. And we all have. Isn't that true? We all have. Amen. In case you never saw somebody get a Kleenex, you could all turn and watch. You guys are so distracted. I see you. But just think of the weight of that sin and the, and, and the pain and the suffering and the anguish it causes us. Imagine multiplied Millions of times over, billions of people over, all put on Jesus. You might not like this, you might think it's sacrilegious, but I once heard a preacher say Jesus became the garbage can of the world on the cross. 
And that might rattle your sensitivities a little bit this morning, but think about that. He did become the garbage can of all of the sin, of all of the vileness, the smallest and the greatest of sins, the sins of the atrocities of what happened in, in, in Germany and or in, in Auschwitz and what's happening in Ukraine what's happening around the world, the injustices that people endure and suffer, think of all of that placed upon Jesus. All the suffering, all the torment in one person. Verse six says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The suffering, the pain, the torment, the agony of Christ on the cross. You know, the physical suffering he went through was great, was a violent death, but it, it paled in comparison to the spiritual suffering. We know as he hung on the cross, one of the seven sayings on the cross was, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And what that was interpreted to mean or translated to mean was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus didn't just feel like he was forsaken. He really, literally was forsaken by God because on that moment, what God was doing was placing on him the sins of the world in judging sin because God is a just God and we believe in justice. God was placing on Jesus the sins of the world and, and, and for one moment in time that had never happened all eternity past and all eternity future will never ever happen again was the, the unity of the Trinity was broken. The divine gaze of God had to be removed from Jesus because God is holy and God had to turn away from his son as he judged sin. So in that moment, Jesus ignored the forsakenness of God. Mind-boggling, beyond human comprehension. He endured that for you and I, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. It was vicarious, but it was also valuable. First Peter chapter one says, we were not redeemed with corruptible, corruptible things such as silver and gold, but we were redeemed with the precious blood of the Son of God. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It was valuable. You know, the, the, the worth of anything, I don't care what it is, it could be a collectible, it could be a home, it could be a car, it could be anything. The, 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 the value of anything is based upon what someone is willing to pay for it. It all depends on what somebody wants to pay for it. And the value of you and me is based upon what God was willing to pay. And he was willing to pay his precious blood. No greater, no greater value could be placed upon you and I than the precious blood of Jesus. Would you thank God right now? Would you say thank you, Jesus? Thank you for your blood. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love me. No matter what people say or what they think, no matter what culture, the value they place on me, but I know you love me, God. 
And lastly, and I conclude with this, it was victorious. It was victorious. If you could turn with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Paul again extolling the value of the cross. He says in verse 13, in you, turn to the person next to you, say he's talking to you. Being dead in your trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Turn to the person next to you, say he's forgiven all of your sins, not just some of them. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, that's, that's the long list of things that could have been held against us. Aren't you glad that Jesus is not like people? That's a whole nother sermon. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the having nailed it to the having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle over, of them, triumphing over them in what? In the cross. Think about it. The, the, what the devil thought was, was his greatest victory became his greatest nightmare. What the devil thought, he was destroying the Son of God. He was finishing him off. God flipped the switch. God flipped the script. God changed everything. What, what the devil thought was he was going to celebrate became his worst nightmare. The Bible says on the cross, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Hallelujah. I don't know what you think of my preaching. I don't care. Paul said, I didn't come with enticing words of man's wisdom, but I came to declare the counsel of God. And in the cross, there is power. There is no greater message for a preacher than to preach on the cross. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Now, now we, we, we made up a song years ago, lift Jesus higher, lift Jesus higher. Don't sing it. That's not correct theologically. <laughs> now, it, it, can be, it can be sung in a different way. But you know what? When Jesus said, lift me up, you know what he was talking about? You know when he said, if I be lifted up, he wasn't talking about our praise. And again, that's okay. It, it, we obviously lift him up in our praise. But you know what? In the context of that, that passage, and I believe it's John chapter 12, when Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. You know what he was saying? If I be crucified. Look in, the, look in the original language. It's definitely what it means. If I be crucified, if I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men unto me. I believe that the cross has a spiritual magnetism that draws people. How can you not look at the cross and see a bleeding and loving Savior who did it for you personally and your heart not be moved and touched? And if it isn't, you are sealed in a doom of rebellion against the holy God. And the Bible says the wrath of God abides on you. Whoever believes in the Son will be saved. He who does not believe the wrath of God abides. That's a scary thought. 
That's a scary thought. This morning, you're either rejoicing and embracing the cross or you're rejecting it. Forget about sentimentality. Forget about a nice cross around your, your thing or a tattoo of a cross. That's all good and fine, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the reality of the power of what Jesus did on the cross for you and I that by faith, that our faith would not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. The power of God is the cross. Amen? Would you stand together with me this morning? I'm going to ask Rachel if she would just come back to the keyboard. Praise God. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we're healed. That, that says it all. He was a man of sorrows. In a world of suffering, in a world of pain, in a world of such emotional trauma. You know, someone has said that COVID, listen, COVID has acted like a pressure cooker in our lives. It's acted like a pressure cooker. Now, I didn't know what a pressure cooker did. I, I like the saying, it's, it rang true, so I looked up, what does is, what is a pressure cooker do? A pressure cooker is a sealed chamber that traps the steam generated as its contents are heated. As the steam builds, the pressure increases, driving the boiling point of water, the point of water past the boiling point of 212 degrees. So I believe, and I don't know if you bear witness with this, that I know in my own life, it just seems like this whole thing with COVID has acted like a pressure cooker in our world, meaning the intensity and the pressure has just risen and increased in our lives beyond what I've ever seen before. And I think we could all be like that can of carbonated drink that says, do not shake. <laughs> Contents under pressure. <laughs> Isn't that true? Uh, I, I know you all look like, you all look so holy and so sanctified this morning, but don't, don't mess with you. Don't cross you. Don't, don't step on your toes. Don't offend you. Because there's, a, there's this been effect. But we need, to, we need to let that go. And we can't do that just by inhaling and exhaling. Breathing techniques are okay, but they're not going to really deal with the, the issue. We're in a pressure cooker, brothers and sisters. And Paul, with fire in his eyes... And with an unyielding determination said, I determined. When I came to you, he said, I determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this morning, brothers and sisters, man, there was never a time to play games or play church. But let me tell you, now playing games are over. Playing church are over. Hollywood Christian Christianity's over. 
God's bringing down, God's exposing ministries, ministries of the flesh. God's not looking for the flesh, he's looking for the spirit. And, 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 and I say that humbly because none of us are exempt. Turn to the person next to you and say, I need God's grace. And this morning, we need to humble ourselves. We need to kneel once again at the cross. We need to bow at the cross and say, God, I come. God, forgive me. No, none of us are sinless. But God's plan is that we would sin less. Amen? But when we do fail, we ask God, forgive me. I repent. I turn to you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. And this morning, the cross is what puts weight in our keel. It gives us that stability because, brothers and sisters, the wind will come, the waves will come, the storms will come. We've seen it. We've seen it through this pressure cooker season. It's affected young people, adolescents, teenagers. We're all feeling it. Don't, don't condescend to young people and say, that, Yo, you don't know what, you haven't lived long enough to know what's going on. Listen, they know. They know the pain, the suffering. And the young people, the adolescents, anybody, Jesus said, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. And I want us to sing this morning one more time that song. Hosanna. Hosanna. Have that song ready, please. And I want us to just take a few moments. Please don't run out so quick. I don't know about you, but this was a great message, not because I'm a great preacher. Please don't clap for me. Give glory to God. This is a great message because it's about the cross. There's nothing like the cross. You can be a bad preacher and preach a good message when you talk about the cross. Amen. Can we bow? Can we humble ourselves? Can we, can we come to the altar this morning? And, and maybe some of you, that pressure cooker of life, you know, you've got to break at the cross. You've got to humble yourself at the cross. You've got to bow in humility at the cross. You've got to surrender at the cross. Would you move out of your seat when you come around the front? I will dismiss in five minutes. Would you hold on five minutes? And after that, if you need to go, please do so quietly. You could, you could bring conversation out in the foyer, in the main entrance, and talk and take your time. That's fine. But, but let's keep this, give opportunity for God to work in people's lives. We're living in such a crazy time. I need the power of the cross in my life. I need the grace of God in my life. You look at me as a preacher, you say, well, do you have problems? I got, yes, I do. Let's leave it at that. I need the cross, just like you do. Let's sing this morning. Let's focus on the cross. This is how we get more weight in our keel. This is how we get more weight more of an anchor to our soul. Don't go by anything else but the cross. Let's sing. Let's worship. Let's take time. Take a few moments before anybody leaves. And then after five minutes, if you feel led to go, do so quietly. But we'll continue to worship and continue to pray.